come on a journey with a cinephile. to episode number 26 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide, David Garrett Jr. here, recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode, we're going to get back into what I have been doing as this is going to be Journey Through the Aughts number two, where the 2020 release here is going to be Vivarium, and then the 1940s film that is going to be as well on this episode is The Devil Bat. And as I told you, I think last episode is there's going to be a ton of what I watched as I have two weeks worth of stuff to go over. So there'll be many reviews here of The Visible Man Returns, The Sacrament, Bates Motel, The Uninvited, The Doctor's Monster, a short film called Slaber Day 7, Omen for the Beginning, Blood Rage, and Mary Riley. But what I'm going to do is since this is the first episode of May, I am going to do my monthly review. Now, the review for what I've done and watched for this last month here is I watched 36 total films, 26 of which were horror films, and four of those were 2020 releases. And those movies are Extraordinary, M.O.M., Mothers of Monsters, Vivarium, and The Doctor's Monster. And then the total of the horror movies that I watched was Blood and Black Lace, Damien, Omen 2, Sleepaway Camp 2, Unhappy Campers, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1920, the Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, Species 3, Cry of the Banshee, Omen 3, The Final Conflict, A Good Marriage, The Bat Whispers, Psycho 4, The Beginning, Cry Wolf, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, The Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde Rock and Roll Musical, Cujo, A Lizard in a Woman's Skin, and then the rest of them are all ones that will be on this episode here. And... Blood and Black Lace isn't going to be featured on this podcast as I did that for Where to Begin with Giallo for Duncan McLeish's sideshow on the T-Puts Collective. And then if you want to hear that review, it should be coming out, I believe, next month. And then there's also The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, which you can also hear over on the movie club for the podcast under the stairs for this month and then i've also watched and recorded some audio for a lizard and woman's skin but that will be featured next month on that same giallo episodes of the t puts collective and then the oldest horror movie that i watched this month is the dr and jekyll mr hyde since it did come from 1920 the lowest rated horror film is going to be on this episode in the mini reviews so pay attention for that the highest rated one that i watched this month is blood and black lace which again you'd have to hear over on the t puts collective but that's all i really wanted to recap there what i'm going to go ahead and do now is get you over to my first musical break and then into those mini reviews enjoy 
you're running about It's time you straighten right out Stop your running around Making trouble in the town Ah, Rudy A message to you, Rudy A message to you You're growing older each day You want to think of your future Or you might wind up in jail Then you will suffer Ah, Rudy A message to you, Rudy A message to you week it is going to be the invisible man returns this is from 1940 this is directed by joe may it comes from characters based off of hg wells's novel this is a story that was both came up from joe may and kurt Sidomack. it also is a screenplay from kurt as well as lester cole and there's additional writing credits that were uncredited to cedric belfrage this stars cedric hartwick Vincent Price and Nan Gray. This is a drama, horror, mystery, sci-fi thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, the owner of a coal mining operation, falsely imprisoned for fratricide, takes a drug to make him invisible despite its side effect, gradual madness. Now, I actually didn't know this existed until I saw the original Invisible Man and started to do some research. It led to me to this one as well as the other films in the series. Now, I've seen all of them, and then upon, you know, this being my second viewing, as this did come out in 1940, so this is another one of my journey through the aughts. 
And after seeing the original of Invisible Man, that was one of my favorite Universal villains. So I was pretty excited to see that they did a sequel to it. And as the synopsis was saying, the person who owns the mining operation is Jeffrey Radcliffe, who is Vincent Price. He is currently being held in prison for murdering his brother. But there are a bunch of people that are hoping that he gets a reprieve because they don't feel he could have done it and is innocent. One of these is his fiancée, Helen Mason, who is gray. And then there's also their friend, who is Dr. Frank Griffin, who is John Sutton. Now, this is interesting as Frank is the brother of the original Invisible Man. And he has actually continued up the research to try to find a cure to being invisible as they want to prevent anybody from using this from going mad and in this point here is that they actually have smuggled in some of the serum to jeffrey in order to go invisible so he can escape from prison until they can figure out who is actually the one that committed this murder and then scotland yard sends someone to investigate who is samson portrayed by cecil kellaway now there's also their friend who has taken over operations at the coal mining facility and that is Richard Cobb who is Hardwick. Now him in charge here we do realize that not everybody is as they seem as they're trying to get to the bottom of this murder but slowly Jeffrey is going mad as the serum kind of makes you almost power hungry and that is what he is experiencing. But we also see, as I was saying, that not everybody is as they seem. And as the whole thing, Jeffrey continues to maintain that he did not kill his brother. And I do have to say, this is a solid sequel to the original. I like that they tied in characters from the previous films. And I do have to give Universal credit, as they did that pretty well with making these sequels, to do whatever they could to not violate continuity. And I believe, if memory serves, this takes place nine years after the original one did. So I don't know in the original if they ever talked about Adrian having a brother. So having this gap in between the two films really does help in my opinion even if it's not that long even if it's a few years because at least that can kind of clear up some things and allow a little bit of story to kind of progress as it does but one of the big things here is that I like how we have Jeffrey who's set to be executed he needs to prove his innocence so he has to commit a crime the problem is that he continues he starts to sink into madness after he becomes invisible he's actually a really good guy and I like that the movie subtly introduces his character as everybody seems to like him but we get to see after him becoming invisible that he slowly becomes worse and worse and starts to do some nefarious things and really pushes his character over the edge i just love having the duality of this character here that i'm not gonna lie if you give me the ability to become invisible i'm not guaranteeing that i'm not going to be doing some you know horrible things so i do think that plays very well but I do have some issues with this film as the first thing is how do they get the formula into the prison that was holding Jeffrey so he could become invisible. Now this is the 40s so I do understand that the prison system was a little bit more lax. It just seems like a plot hole to me. And I also found it weird that the police while they're searching the house for Jeffrey they completely ignore a room where if you're going to do a complete search I feel like you would you know create a line and just go through everything including you know the rooms and not just you know, get to the end of the hallway and then go back and start to check on things. Another thing I think is there for convenience to allow the story to progress. I do think this movie is much better with how deep the story is than some of the more early ones. There's not a lot in the way of subplots, but we do actually have some things here where a reveal of a certain character and then we get to see some dark things and why they've been doing certain things like that that we don't necessarily get. We get established that Jeffrey's a good person, but then... We get to see how vicious he is starting to become. 
So we do at least get a little bit of that, even though it doesn't have the longest running time, which I do think works in its favor. I thought the acting here was pretty good. We have some dual natures of characters that I've been saying. I do like to see Hardwick here, as I've seen him in previous Universal films, as he's one of the staple actors they use. And I think he's just solid in general. It's really fun to see an early role from Price, even though we really don't get to see him as he's mostly, you know, in bandages and whatnot to have his face covered up. We do get to see him at some point, but it's just interesting to see a, you know, very early performance before he was typecast. He does a great job here at conveying emotion as well as turning himself into the villain. I thought Grey was solid in her performance and was quite attractive. I do like that we have Sutton as a secondary character here, being the brother of the Invisible Man from the previous film. I thought that Kellaway does pretty well in bringing some humor, but he's also a pretty good cop, so we don't really have that bumbling thing there. And then we have some other minor characters here that definitely do help to round this film out for what was needed. Now, one of the really last things I wanted to cover would be the effects. Since this came out after the original, I thought they did a bit more with the invisibility thing, and I thought that was pretty cool. I'm assuming that they're using early green screen here. I could be wrong. Whatever they did is pretty impressive with minimal flaws in my eyes, especially being that this movie is 80 years old. And I would say, I mean, it's good for the era, but it's also very good for even nowadays, if I'm going to be honest. I do like how they play with a little bit of things here with like smoke and rain to make the Invisible Man show up when he's out in it, as that is some interesting things to think about when somebody is invisible. And the cinematography was also solid in my opinion. Now, I would say I would recommend seeing this film. If you enjoyed the original or just enjoy some of these Universal classics, I thought this has a great cast as well as a concept. The story is deeper than the original, and I think this has benefited from fleshing out the characters more as well. Now, this is in black and white since it did come out in 40, so keep that in mind. If this one does sound good, I would give it a viewing, as this can be viewed without seeing the original, because this film does well in filling in the backstory from what you need from the original. This one, though, is deserving of seeing, or of getting a viewing, especially for its historical significance, as well as being the first horror film with Price in it. I do this find this to be a worthy successor to the original as well as a good movie overall and i came in with an 8 out of 10 here and next up i have the sacrament from 2013. this was written and directed by ty west it stars joe swanberg aj bowen and kentucker oddly this is a horror thriller from the united states it is currently sitting on a 6.1 on imdb and a 3.0 on letterboxd with the synopsis being a news team trails a man as he travels into the world of Eden Parish to find his missing sister, where it becomes apparent that this paradise may not be as it seems. Now, this is a film that I didn't hear about until I got into podcasts. I had seen one of the writer-director's previous films, The Innkeepers, and wasn't the biggest fan of it the first time I saw it, and then through podcasts learned about The House of the Devil, which that one I've seen, both of these I've actually seen a couple of times, and I really appreciate them even more with the second viewing but I did like The House of the Devil a lot. Now to the subject here, I had heard about this film and you know, finally got around to seeing it and was pretty excited because I knew that this was loosely based on the events that happened at Jonestown, that great massacre and tragedy there. Now this starts out at the headquarters for the news outlet Vice, which I thought was pretty cool that they got the rights to kind of use this as it gives it a bit of sense of realism since this is a found footage movie. Now we're given the backstory here that this news outlet covers things that might not be, you know, covered in the mainstream media. And this leads us to our character of Jake Williams, who is Swanberg. His sister is a drug addict that had left the city to go live in a religious commune in Mississippi. And then it seems that the followers 
packed up and left for I believe South America to an undisclosed location and she reached out to her brother providing just a phone number and it's decided that through Sam Turner who is Bowen they want to respond and agree to you know go see her and try to document it. The problem is they don't get this agreement until they actually show up to the religious commune where we get to see that there's actually armed guards and only you can get there by helicopter. Now she does show up and her name is Carolyn as she's played by Amy Simons where she does get it okayed that they can come in and document all of this. Now they also have a cameraman that comes with them who is Patrick played by Audley. Now when they get to their cabin, Jake goes off to the main house with his sister so they can catch up. And then Sam and Patrick go about interviewing some of the different people at this commune. And from what they're getting from everybody, it seems to be an amazing place and that everybody loves what they're doing here. We do get an odd scene, though, where a little girl named Savannah, who was played by Talia Dobbins, shows up at their cabin door. She doesn't respond when they ask her questions. And then her mother shows up, Sarah, who tells her the girl is mute and that they're not supposed to talk to outsiders and it ends up getting agreed upon that they can do an interview of the man who runs this place who goes by father portrayed by gene jones and we see that there's a huge celebration that night and we get a chilling scene of father as he comes out and he's exalted like a king and then the interview doesn't go necessarily as planned as Sam tries to ask him questions, but there's such a weird energy and father just kind of turns things around back on Sam and ends up making the place look better than what it is. But I do think that here we get to really to see that the charismatic leader of father is just so well at talking and just has such a presence and having all of the followers watching really just makes everybody feel uncomfortable. And I thought it worked pretty well for me. And no matter what really happens here, that the next morning things take quite the turn and it becomes a fight for survival. Now, as I said, I know this was a fictionalized account of what happened at Jonestown with the People's Temple religious cult. Now, I have heard rumors that Wes denied at some points that this isn't what he was going for, but then I've heard elsewhere that he, you know, confirmed that that's exactly what he was playing on. Regardless, we get a 2010s version of what happened there, and it's chilling to see how this plays out going the found footage route because it really almost feels like we're actually there, and these people, you know, this is their first-hand account makes it that much more eerie if it's going to be honest. And it's quite unbelievable, but knowing that something like this happened makes it even more chilling for me. Now, I want to delve into the idea of cults here for a minute father portrayed by jones here was really good he's charismatic in an odd way everything that he's saying i agree with he's trying to create a place that's without racism misogyny xenophobia and all of these type of things the problem though is that we're seeing the duality of why places like this aren't necessarily possible sam patrick and jake all believe that what he's doing here is great they have this mindset of normal people would though being shocked to see all these people are giving up everything they have for this person who isn't as good as they think sam also points out that this place would be great as like a rehab sober living type place but only in small doses because the problem that you run into is that the isolation can help you clear your mind and with time the problem though is that when you give absolute power to somebody like father despite what he says corrupts him absolutely as the saying goes and we see that despite what he tells these people he's doing things that aren't really going in line with what he is preaching and that's kind of what you get where like you know how communism tends to uh, turn into a dictatorship where the leaders in power do some pretty shady things now going along with this though father also targets outcasts this is something i've noticed that many religious do as they corrupt those people i think that we have they have good intentions in the beginning but going back to the power dynamic is once they get a taste of it, they can't control themselves. Do I think that com 
the father is completely bad? I don't. He is taking advantage of some people though, and I think he's psychotic where he ends up. Seeing the events here were chilling with brutal realism for me, and it made me feel uncomfortable, and I'm not gonna lie, I was very disturbed by what I was seeing. I thought this was paced in a way where the found footage aspect, it feels a little bit rushed though, as this also happens in just like a 24 hour period or so. This night really kind of turns everything on its head and then the movie is backloaded with the action. I don't hate it since I knew coming in what it was based off of. This just gives an odd vibe of being, you know, so peaceful in the beginning. You can just feel something building. So the tension really just kind of gets to that climax and then becomes heartbreaking. And I thought the ending worked even though I feel some things are a bit convenient, if I'm going to be honest. For me, I thought the acting was good. I thought Swineberg was fine. He isn't really in the movie a whole lot, though, but he does give that vibe of somebody who's estranged from his sister and is concerned. Bowen does a great job in this movie. There's just an uneasiness for him. He has a pregnant wife at home, and as things get tense, I want him to survive so bad. And he also shows what happens when you encounter someone like Father and kind of loses himself in their charm and act oddly a sign but being the primary cameraman we do lose a bit of realism with some of the things that he has to film because if we don't get it on film we can't actually get to see it so i don't think it necessarily works at all times i do have to say though the most powerful performance and the best performance hands down is jones in this he doesn't get a lot of screen time but when he does he commands it and it is terrifying i just don't like the decision that we get later in the movie as i thought it should have went just a slight bit farther for me simons was fine but i do feel she's underutilized as i know she has talented I know a lot of people don't really care for in the Pet Cemetery remake. I personally thought she was really good and thought she was a stronger performance than Denise Crosby, but that's just my opinion. The rest of the cast I thought we got here did round this out for building to the realism. Kind of already covered this a little bit. I do feel the found footage aspects do get to be a bit problematic here and there. I like that we have a cameraman for Vice, so I get that they're more used to actually filming things because he's a professional filmmaker. The problem becomes, though, when things get crazy, I don't necessarily know if I would buy somebody to keep filming like they do. This is something I have with found footage films in general, though, so I'm not going to harp on it too much more. The effects here, though, were subdued, and I'm fine with that as it does feel more natural. So now with that said, I really did enjoy this movie. It is a slow burn that I come to expect from Ty West, but having the basis of this terrifying event as the history backdrop helps... I thought the performance from Jones was amazing. He is terrifying with his charisma and his message. The rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. The found footage style adds an element while also being slightly problematic. I do think there are some things that happen here that are a bit convenient, but enough not enough to ruin everything, though. I'm figuring that the editing and the music were added as this is being presented as a film where we do have, like, title lines that are used and everything like that. So I'm willing to overlook that. Overall, I'd say this is a good movie and would recommend this if you want to see a fictionalized account of Jonestown. Also, I would say this to horror and non-horror fans alike to give this a viewing, as I don't feel that the horror elements are too over the top and is definitely an interesting watch. Unless you don't like found footage films, then I would definitely say to avoid this, but my rating here on this one is going to be an 8 out of 10 as well. And then next up, I have the... TV movie Bates Motel from 1987. This was written and directed by Richard Rothstein. It stars Bud Court, Lori Petty, and Moses Gunn. This is a comedy drama horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 3.8 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a mentally disturbed man who roomed with the late Norman Bates. 
at the State Lunatic Asylum inherits the legendary Bates Motel after the death of Norman and tries to fix it up with a respectable business. Now, I had no idea this one existed, much like many of the other films in the Psycho series for some time. This one I actually didn't learn about until I was listening to podcasts, and I believe on the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror, they had said that there was this TV movie spinoff from the original one that was released in between Psycho 3 and Psycho 4 The Beginning. This does ignore all of the movies, much like we would see with like Halloween from 2019 or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series. So it does get to be kind of weird there. But this one picks up right at the end of Psycho. Norman, who in this one is portrayed by Kurt Paul, has been convicted of the crimes that he committed, and we get to see a bit of his backstory being explained from a news reporter. Norman is under the care of Dr. Goodman, who is Robert Picardo. We get to end up seeing a young boy who is also at this hospital, and they think it's a good idea to pair this boy, Alex, up with Norman to help both of them with their therapy. Now, Alex West ends up growing up to be portrayed by Court, and Norman dies, and at the will, will reading is when Alex learns that he has inherited the Bates Motel. Now, Dr. Goodman thinks it'll be a good idea for him to leave the hospital now, as he's been there his whole life and really needs to kind of branch out and kind of be on his own. And he ends up, flies into Los Angeles, and then gets on a bus to go to Fairville, which is changing the name from Fairview, I believe. Now, when he arrives in this town, nobody seems to know anything about the Bates Motel, as everybody keeps claiming there to be new. This is supposed to be a joke, where this movie has some comedy that does not really land with me at all. But Alex does end up meeting this man, Henry Watson, who is Gunn, and it turns out he was a former employee there and takes Alex to the house. It is slated to be torn down and there's a fence around it. And despite the warnings, Alex says he's going to stay in the night there. And he ends up staying in cabin one and prepares to go to the bank the following day. It is there he meets Tom Fuller, who is portrayed by Greg Henry. He thinks that Alex is there to get a loan so he can tear down the property and then rebuild on it. And he's shocked to find out that Alex actually just wants a small loan to fix it up. As he's willing to listen to this plan before approving the loan. That night, Alex returns home, and at the house, he ends up learning that there is a young woman who has been squatting there, as named Willie, who is Lori Petty. And despite what Alex says at first, she decides she's going to stay on to help him, and he also enlists the aid of Henry to help try to fix up this property. But there's a weird thing that happens that while they're digging, they find the skeleton of a woman that they believe to be Norma, and it is at her funeral that he sees a woman in black and starts to thinks he sees her in the main house back at the property but the question is is he really seeing these things now i'm gonna leave my recap there as i don't really want to bash this movie but it's a mess i feel it is interesting that they decided to do a spin-off randomly and not trying to have this fall in line with recognizing the other films in the series as this comes from universal television so it they have the properties of all of these psycho films i just personally found this to be quite odd to be honest now with that out of the way i think the setup to this is fine we have a mentally disturbed boy that grew up with norman i don't recall that we ever really figured out what is wrong with him or why he's at the hospital and you know spends his whole life there i'm thinking his parents died and he was really disturbed by it but i could be wrong there and i like that he's an out of place character and he surrounds himself with a streetwise girl and willie and henry who is a rough but kind man now as i've said before they try to put comedy in here it fell flat for me though this movie tries to also have a possible supernatural feel to it now the ending does play like a scooby-doo story now and we also get this other weird subplot where we have this barbara peters portrayed by carrie keen is the first person to check in and then a she's planning to kill herself but then we get this young teenage girl sally who is portrayed by christina haji 
as she kind of barges into the room and then invites her to a party. And I end up learning that this was supposed to be a spinoff into a television series. And it seems like that's what they're trying to play with here. But I think the problem is they're trying to do too much with not enough time. There's a good message with this subplot, but it just doesn't work for me. So as I've said, this movie isn't very good, and I was bored throughout it for the most part. I think it just is lacking direction, and having these two stories that aren't really correlated trying to work together just didn't work. The acting wasn't really all that great either. I thought Court was fine as a socially awkward character. I don't recognize him, but I wouldn't be shocked if he plays this character in other things, as it doesn't seem too far of a stretch for him. I thought it was kind of cool to see Petty here as she is a character or an actress that I've seen in a few different things, and I've always thought she was pretty solid. She does bring some life to this film. Gunn is another weird character. We get an odd scene where we see him having this weird standoff with the police as they're about to tear down his house, and they just allow Alex to walk in while they have this standoff, and Henry agrees to leave, and they just let him. I just I don't really understand that whole process they were going there. Henry, as the banker comes off here, he plays a snake character very well. As I've seen him do it previously, Haji was pretty attractive, as was Keen. And I also thought it was cool to see cameos by Picardo and an odd cameo by Jason Bateman to round this out as well. So as I'll say, the acting isn't horrible, it's just not great. The last thing to cover would be the effects. We really don't get a lot of them here, to be honest. One thing that works in this favor of this movie is they shoot a lot of things from distance, and I think that does help. And there's something at the end as well where there's these two cheap masks that are being used. I have a soft spot for this for the reveal that is coming with that. But other than that, I would say the cinematography is fine for a TV movie. Now, with that said, I just don't really know much about this movie and I can see why. This is really kind of a cult thing. And I think that's part of why it's so obscure and wild that it was made. I don't think that we have a horrible setup and the idea of Alex trying to make his way outside of the comforts of the hospital is an interesting idea. I think the people they have around him are fine. The lack of a coherent story or building toward anything really hurts this. We get a subplot that feels out of place. It is shot fine, but there's not really a lot working in its favor. I thought the soundtrack fit for what they were going for. And I do have to be honest as well, I can't re recommend this movie, even if you like Psycho or any of its sequels as this spinoff really just doesn't fit. And I would say this is well below average, bordering on bad for me, as I came in with a three out of 10 on this one. Then I have The Uninvited from 2009. This is directed by the guard brothers of Charles and Thomas. This was a screenplay that was written by Craig Rosenberg, Doug Miro, and Carlo Bernard, and is based off of the picture from Jiwoo Kim, which I believe is the tale of two sisters. This is a drama horror mystery thriller from the United States, Canada, and Germany. This is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being Anna returns home after a stint in a mental hospital, but her recovery is jeopardized by her cruel stepmother and ghastly visions of her dead mother. Now, this is a movie that I originally remember checking out back in the theater when it first came out while I was in college. I didn't realize this was a remake of a South Korean film, and I will admit, I still have not gotten around to seeing the original. Now, I have seen this one twice, with the second time here being with Jamie while we were looking for a movie to watch on a rainy Sunday. And I knew I liked this after my first viewing, and so I was intrigued to see how this would hold up. Now, this starts off showing us a little bit of the top of a fire. And then we see that Anna, who is portrayed by Emily Browning, is with her boyfriend, Matt, who is Jesse Moss. He wants to have sex, but she tells him she has to go home. On her way there, she finds a trash bag in the middle of nowhere in the woods and finds a dead body of a girl fallout. 
This girl is played by Lex Burnham, and she tells Anna not to go home. She then runs home and is calling out, trying to find her father. She ends up hearing a bell and goes out to the boathouse. Inside, she finds her sick mother, who is portrayed by Maya Masser, who is being ravaged by a disease. It then turns out that Anna is recounting her dream to a Dr. Siberling, portrayed by Dean Paul Gibson. He gives her his impression of what he thinks the dream means and tells her that he thinks that she's ready to leave. So she gets pretty excited, but while she's packing, she gets a weird scene with somebody portrayed by Heather Dokerson that unnerves Anna. Now her father then shows up, Stephen, who is David Stranthorn, and they end up driving home. It is during this drive that we learn that her father, Stephen, is now living with Rachel, his new girlfriend, portrayed by Elizabeth Banks. Anna isn't too happy about this. As Rachel was their mother's nurse while she passed away, she doesn't like the changes that are being made to the house. And while she was gone, and neither does her sister Alex, who is Ariel Kebble. Now, Alex is also upset with Anna for leaving here to deal with their father and his new girlfriend. Now, while she's home, Anna starts to get suspicions that her mother was killed by Rachel as there was an explosion and a fire that killed her. And... The two sisters decide that they speculate more and more of what to do and start to unravel the mystery and try to figure out who Rachel is. But the more that they learn, the more things don't necessarily play out as they think. And I will say, after rewatching this, I came in knowing what the twist is this time around. And I like how there's another way that you can watch this trying to piece everything together to see what the actual true events are. What I think works here really well is that we have Anna who is fresh out of the hospital where she sought treatment so she becomes an unreliable narrator as we have questions as well. I would say the mystery here is good. I don't blame Anna and Alex for not liking Rachel. She was the nurse to their mother who was having an affair with Steven as she was dying. I think Rachel's pretty shitty for that. Plus, you have her moving into the house barely 10 months after the tragedy, so I can understand why there's some scandalous behavior here. But on top of that, though, I have to give a lot of credit to Banks for her performance, as I thought she did really well here. Looking at this film as a whole and knowing what happens, she plays things a bit odd. I think, though, that seeing it from Anna's point of view is the reason for that. Now, while she's trying to do what she can to help, I think that... There's a bit of concern to not upset her and sending her spiraling back to the hospital, which is why I could see Rachel kind of handling some of the things that she does. And I'll admit, I'm a big fan of Browning as well, so I like her as this main character trying to piece everything together, and yet we can't, you know, fully trust her. Kebble, Stranthorn, and Moss are all fine in support, as well as the others that we get here to run this out for what was needed. I will admit, though, I did find this to be a little bit boring and I mean, I do like seeing how the, all the pieces fit together and explain what happened that fateful night. And I do even like that we're getting to see little things here that piece together the dream as well to explain the event. So that is all cool. I just, for whatever reason, just struggled to kind of this time around really get hooked. And I do think that they kind of use the dream sequence a little bit too much, which probably what has me check out. There is one of them, though, with a character, and then we realize soon after that this character has passed away. I did like that one and how it explains everything. And I think another problem that I have with this movie is that we get the typical Americanized version of an Asian film where we have to see all these scenes as they really are being played out instead of just allowing the audience to kind of know what is happening because we're much smarter than that, and I do feel that the movie kind of doesn't necessarily agree with that. I do think that the effects here were fine for what we got. We get some creepy images during some of the dream sequences with Anna or her mother, where she is seeing her as a monster. It never is established what she had, but I 
and I don't like the movie having a ton of dream sequences. There's one here that did, as I said, work for me a lot. But other than that, I do think the film was shot pretty well in my opinion. So now with that said, I still enjoyed this movie. And I've admitted a few times here that I haven't seen the original. But this really makes me want to see that even more so I can compare. There's a decent little mystery here that we get that has you questioning things that we're seeing due to the fact that we have an unreliable narrator. I do think the acting is pretty solid across the board. The movie is a bit boring, if I'm going to be honest, and what we get for effects and how this was shot was fine in my opinion. The soundtrack didn't really stand out to me, but it also doesn't hurt the movie either. There was one scene where it stood out and helped to enhance the feel for sure. I'd say that overall this is a movie that is above average, but not really great though. This might be a little bit light for a veteran of horror fans, but I would say that if a younger fan is looking to get in the genre, I'd give this a viewing. Especially if they do want to kind of get into Asian cinema as well, because this, I feel like, is a light version of that from some of the other ones that I've seen, you know, comparing the original Asian ones to the American remakes, as this, as I said, falls into those type of remakes. But it's kind of weird. This one came out a bit late to really work, like The Grudge, The Ringer, Dark Water do. But my rating here is going to be that this is an above-average film that I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. And up next, I have The Doctor's Monster from 2020. This was written and directed by Rick Jenkins. It stars Zach Zubalina, Benjamin Schnau, and Giselle Mendoza. This is a sci-fi film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 2.0 on IMDb. And a looks about like one star on Letterboxes. There's not that many ratings on there as of yet. With the synopsis being... A reclusive doctor desperate to help his dying daughter attempts the ultimate experiment, bringing a dead body back to life. Now this was a movie that I saw on a group document in one of the horror podcast groups that I'm in for 2020 horror films. It was one that I could watch for free on Prime and I'm not going to lie, I started it about two weeks ago and realized there was something better that I could watch. So I shelved this until yesterday. Now, since this week I already had a featured review here for this podcast, I still wanted to make sure that I would watch another film for this week just so I can stay on my pace for 2020 horror film watches. Now, this movie follows a Dr. Victor Monster, who is Zublina, as he's talking to his daughter, Brooklyn, who is Irvia Changio. She's dying of a disease that killed her mother, and there's no cure currently. Dr. Monster is trying to do an experiment on bringing a dog back to life with the help of his assistants, Lydia, who is Mendoza, and Boris, who is Chanel. They're able to get the heart beating, but it doesn't revive the dog. And in a move of desperation, Dr. Monster now wants to experiment on a human, and Boris tries to remind him that this is why he can no longer work in an animal hospital for doing experiments on the animals there, but he insists regardless that he needs to do this to save his daughter's life. So they go about trying to find a recently deceased body in order to do this experiment, but during this, Brooklyn's boyfriend, who is Detective Richard Gatz, who is Keith Mills, shows up. Dr. Monster and him are not very fond of each other, and he is sent away. Richard doesn't go away quietly, but he eventually has to as he's not getting anywhere. They end up reviving this person into the monster who is Terran Wentz, and then he escapes and goes about on a rampage through the area surrounding the hospital. Now, I don't like to bash movies. It's just not really my thing that I find fun, and I feel that there's a lot of hard work and time that goes into making movies. Now, with that said, though, this is a bad movie. To start, the story I feel was lazy on their writing of it. This takes the Frankenstein story that is brought into modern times, which I don't mind that, 
even though this is something that's been done over and over again. My problem here is that they lazily call our mad scientist Dr. Monster. This also becomes slightly confusing as he creates a monster. It makes it comical that this is actually the character's name. It would work better if this was a nickname that people are doing behind his back, but no, that is not the route they took. Being that this is low budget, there are still things that you can do within the confines that don't necessarily take money. And I think a little bit more care to the screenplay is one of them. Now the setting we have here is weird as well. I'd bet they have access to this building that is probably partially abandoned. There's plywood up over the windows of several rooms that just make it feel off. I'm okay with that aspect, but the problem then becomes is that something that it said later on makes it seem like this is actually a working hospital, but it definitely looks far from that. Now, there's also a scene where we get to see Detective Gats in his office. I am willing to believe that this office is another room inside of this building that they're using as the setting here. Now, not only that, but this is a pretty boring movie, which is hard to do when you only have a runtime of 73 minutes. Without a good story to hook you in or really good acting, I just really didn't get hooked and I just don't really care about any of the characters and I'm also checked out that I don't feel like they're putting the effort forward so I don't necessarily know why I should be and these are things that you can really do that don't necessarily cost any money. The ending just sort of happens and then goes on with a cliche to set us up for a sequel that we don't need. Now as for the acting, Zublina as a doctor does play this obsessed mad scientist fine. I get confused is that he no longer is able to work in an animal hospital, but he's out here to bring people back from the dead. I just feel like they thought of adding things to the screenplay as they went without really thinking of the implications and if they fit together. Chanel was also fine, but I'm not sure why he has these goggle things on his head. He never uses them and it just feels like a prop that someone had. Mendoza, I think, is trying to add sex appeal to her role as a nurse, but she just seems more like a stripper. Wentz was fine as the monster. I think we need more development from Chagnio to really make the story work. I did think that Mills was fine and the rest of the cast was just mediocre at best. Now as for the effects, they did have a couple of bright spots to be honest. One of them was the makeup that was done on the faces for the use of their fake eye. The close-ups you can really see that it wasn't that great, but I'm still going to give them credit. Aside from that, the rest were pretty forgettable. There was some CGI that takes it down even more for me, except I did like the blood that we get when it's on things, but the spray clearly is fake. And then we also get some odd angles, so I really can't even say that the cinematography was now with that said, this is a bad film, and I feel bad for saying that. We're taking a story that's been done over and over again, but they just really didn't try anything new, and really didn't seem like they cared. I give them credit for making a movie, but that's really where it ends there. The acting is mediocre at best, everything else here was flawed, so it's really hard for me to say that one part really stood out to me, unfortunately. I would rate this as a bad movie, not the worst that I've seen, as there are little parts that did work for me regardless, but my rating here is a 2 out of 10. And up next, I have something special here as I was reached out through the Slasher app as well as through Instagram to check out a short film by the name of Slaber Day 7. This was technically made in 2019, but it just now got its release as of yesterday. This is a horror short comedy that was written and directed by Justin Wayne. This stars Derek K. Moore, Paul Noonan, and Mike Aspinwall. This is from the United States as well and is there's not currently a rating on imdb as so far the last time i've looked i'm the only person to have rated on imdb on letterboxd it looks like myself and one other person are the only two to have rated it on there so i would say about an average is about a four with the synopsis being 
Maddox Mason, a slasher icon who kills people that wear white after Labor Day, is chronicled in this mockumentary. This one I didn't know a whole lot about, so I came in pretty blind so I could fully enjoy this. And what I have to say about it is that we have a mockumentary style here where we are following a killer by the name of Maddox Mason. And the show that he's been chronicled on as the synopsis stated called behind the mask which i find this to be pretty interesting and i'm assuming this is a play on the found footage mockumentary slasher film behind the mask the rise of leslie vernon which i think is pretty cool little thing to do there to kind of give a nod to horror fans who really you know have gone a little bit deeper into the genre than most and i mean this is kind of following a similar thing where they're doing at interviews as well as a mockumentary about leslie vernon there and it has a nice little twist near the end there now this one we have a host who is barry bones who is portrayed by noonan as he sits down to interview maddox who is Moore, and they kind of just go through and recap the previous six labor day films and then we get a nice little twist there at the end but what i really like about this is that Slaber Day is really parodying slasher films that came out in the 90s where they're making fun of the Floating Heads posters and they're referencing I Know What You Did Last Summer. Not only that, but the premise of the Slaber Day movie is pretty funny as it's playing on the motif that I've always heard about how you're not supposed to wear white after Labor Day. So Maddox is going around killing people for this reason. And then the sequels get pretty outrageous where they have things like going into space. And I mean, they had six films that have kind of parlayed off of this. Which I find this to be pretty interesting is this almost kind of reminded me when I was seeing some of the posters of Leprechaun as, you know, the fourth one there was in space. And that's the same thing that we get with Slaber Day. This movie does pretty well in what I have to say is for the time and effort and care they put into this as they have, you know, fans of the movie. They set up convention where we have people that are in love with this movie. And then you also have a YouTube reviewer of Courtney Wolf, who is portrayed by Chelsea Forgesgren, which I thought this was kind of a cool thing to do. And just the time and effort put in to come up with all these different ideas in the posters, I have to give them a lot of credit for. The only thing that I really have a gripe here about this one is that they almost are blurring the line a little too much that this isn't, that this all had really happened and they're not just movies. We also get where we get to meet Maddox's mother, Lisa, portrayed by Sissy O'Hara, as she's showing pictures of him as a boy. And the reason the mask that he's wearing is because of her, because she said that he was a really ugly child. We never actually get to see a picture of him without his mask, so I thought that was kind of strategic in making me wonder. Now, the mask is very simple, as it's just a red mask that is very plain. I personally liked it, and I also kind of like the idea here of... How most serial killers in the slasher films usually have mommy issues, so we definitely have that playing in here. And then being this is a mockumentary, we really don't get any kills here as we're just kind of seeing archive footage, which I'm fine with because they do give us a little bit there. And I have to say, since these are parodies of these slasher movies, I think the kills are a little bit over the top, and so I'm forgiving of the CGI and the effects that are used as it actually kind of cracked me up. So with that said, I had a fun time with this one. I don't think this is going to blow you away. I do like the feel of the mockumentary, though, that we get here, and it ends up being pretty interesting. The acting isn't great, but it doesn't need to be, and I think that kind of adds an element to it, as this, you know, is very similar to the found footage genre, and I do feel like this is really recapping one of the lesser-known slasher villains in the era where slasher films, you know, kind of got over the top and kind of went downhill, so I think that's fun. I found this to be above-average short for me, 
And I would recommend giving this a viewing if you get the chance. And my rating here came in at a 6.5 out of 10. And that will move me over to the Omen 4, The Awakening. This came out in 1991. This was directed by Jorge Montesi and Dominique Othen Girard. It was written by Brian Taggart, who came up with this story with Harvey Bernhard. And this is from characters from David Seltzer. This stars Faye Grant, Michael Woods, and Michael Lerner. This is a horror mystery thriller from Canada. This is currently sitting on a 3.9 on IMDb and a 1.9 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, two attorneys adopt a mysterious orphan girl as their daughter, unaware that she is the new Antichrist. Now, this is a film that I know I saw in college when I picked it up on DVD, but hadn't seen it in years. I don't even really remember seeing this one. And it is funny to me that one of my favorite podcasts, A 22 Shots of Moods and Horror, covered this franchise. And I know another person on social media just watched, watched this as well. So just kind of fill in a little bit of the synopsis before I get into kind of my thoughts is that we start at an orphanage where we have Mother Superior portrayed by Susan Chapel and Sister Yvonne played by Megan Litchie. Something feels off about the two as they're talking, and then they end up meeting with Karen, who is Grant, and Jean York, who is Woods. Now, Karen is asking a million questions about the baby they're about to adopt. Her fears are put to ease, though, when they actually see her, and they take the girl home and name her Delia. Now, we do get an odd interaction between the two nuns that causes Sister Yvonne to leave as she doesn't agree with Mother Superior. Now, from there, we see this little girl growing up and kind of going through different things, and then she is in a kindergarten class and played by Asia Vieira, where we see that she has a bit of an attitude and is semi-violent as she goats a boy named Jerome, who is James Sherry, into hitting her, but he is also bullying her. And then we also see that she just has, you know, some attitude as well. And on top of that, though, they end up bringing in a nanny who is Joe Thusen, played by Anne Hearn. Now, she knows there's something not right about Delia, and the more that she looks into it, the more that her mother starts to also believe that there might not be something right about this girl that they adopted. And it's much more shocking once we learn the truth that is being hidden about her past. Now, for me here, I remember not really caring for this one, but I didn't really remember it a whole lot either. Now, this time around, I was glad to actually watch it with a critical eye, as I think this does really well on playing up some of the things that we got from some of the previous ones. Now, this does feel a lot like a mirror of the original Omen movie, except we have a young girl here instead of, you know, the boy Damien. And then we also, on top of that, have something we get kind of from the movie Damien itself, where Karen is struggling to get pregnant, so she's a bit desperate, so that's why they end up adopting this young girl. And then we also see some things happen near the end of this movie, though that kind of change and alter that. So I do like that aspect of it there. And on top of that, Karen hires a private investigator to look into it. But I just like that, much like in the other films in the series, we don't have the two parents immediately thinking that something's up when weird things start to happen. Gene, as he has been pushed into politics now, doesn't believe there's anything wrong there. So I like that we have the duality where we have one parent who's really believing it, and then the other one who doesn't necessarily do so. And I think their acting there is pretty well done. Some of the other things that we get is some of the deaths that we get here are mirrored in the other Omen film. And actually in the original Omen film from my memory. And I even like that though this is a TV movie. I think they do pretty well with the effects. 
as I would actually say, this is one that goes back to where we get the thought process that the little girl could be possibly behind some of these deaths that are going on. And I do think that really works for me. Where I know in the final conflict, the third Omen movie, they really started to get away with that in my eyes. Now, this could have went a little bit more mean-spirited for me, but I'm all right that it doesn't necessarily do that. As I said, I thought the acting was pretty solid. The effects don't go over the top, and I think they do well in hiding some of that. And I also like some of the cinematography, because we get a lot of upside-down crosses that are naturally done that are a decent little tie-in for me. I also like for here that the soundtrack, they went back to using the main theme from the original and the third movie, and incorporating more of the chorus music that's sung in Latin. That just gives me such an eerie feeling, and being that this is a religious-based horror movie, I think that actually helps out a lot there. I don't think this one is great. I do think that this is probably the worst of the original four, and especially it's hard to say the original four is because there was an original trilogy, and then this one came out quite a bit after, but I'm willing to be forgiving of that. I still found this to be an above-average movie, and I think that this is interesting to kind of reboot it almost, and even tie in the original three into this one as well. So I came in with a 6.5 out of 10. And then next up, I have Blood Rage from 1987. This is directed by John Grismer. It was written by Bruce Rubin. It stars Luis Lasser, Mark Soper, and Julie Gordon. This is a horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being as kids, Todd is institutionalized for a murder whilst his twin goes free. Ten years later, on Thanksgiving, Todd escapes and a killing spree begins in his neighborhood. Now, this is a film that I had never heard about until I got into podcasts. I think that it jumped onto my radar around November due to the fact that this movie is centered on the Thanksgiving holiday, and there aren't a lot of movies around this one in the horror genre. And I always have a soft spot for slashers as well. Now, just to give a little bit more backstory here, this starts in 1973 in Jacksonville, Florida. We're at a drive-in, and we get to see a guy walking around, which I think was kind of interesting that he is Brad Leland, who goes on to play a character on Friday Night Lights, the TV show, and he buys a condom from Ted Raimi, which I believe I also read that this was his feature film debut, but it's really just a cameo here. And the movie shows us a bunch of couples as they're making out and going much farther than that. And then it shifts over to a car where we have Maddie, portrayed by Lasser, with her boyfriend. He wants to make out, but she's leery as her two twin sons are sleeping in the back. Now, they do end up starting to neck and then the boys wake up and sneak out and they end up finding a hammer with a hatchet head on the back which i wasn't sure if this was something that was real or not but i end up looking it up and find out this is in fact a hammer that you can buy not necessarily used for carpentry or anything like that but it can be used for that from the information that i found now one of the boys, Terry, kills the teen that we saw earlier and then wipes the blood on his brother and blames him. And Todd is the other brother who's in a catatonic state and doesn't defend himself. So he ends up spending the next 10 years in an insane asylum. Maddie goes to visit him around Thanksgiving and she is he has been assigned to a Dr. Berman portrayed by Marianne Cantor. And she's made a breakthrough and it's revealed finally that Todd knows that Terry did the killing. Maddie won't accept this and she goes hysterical. Now, Todd has a bit of a breakdown, but the doctor isn't bothered by it as she can see that he is revealing the truth and wants to continue to help him. Now, what ends up happening, though, is that Todd escapes from this asylum, and this makes Terry go on a murderous rampage again because he can blame it on his brother once more. 
So he's trying to find him, and I believe to kill him, but also to, you know, blame him for what is happening. Now, some of the things that really struck me about this one is I like this idea of one twin being insane and then blaming everything on his brother. This isn't a slasher film where we are confused as to who the killer is. We know exactly what is going on from the get-go, so I did like that. Now, I did feel some of the stuff with the mother is a little bit too much, and a lot of it just feels like filler. And it doesn't really go anywhere since they keep cutting back to her, so I could have done without that. And then the Todd kind of just disappears for long stretches in this movie. Wasn't a big fan of that, and I thought they could have utilized a little bit better to have him in the film. I do find that the apartment complex here was a pretty cool setting because this involves Terry knowing all of his victims and knowing who he can attack and who is home and everything like that. I do find this to be a pretty progressive movie as it looks like Maddie isn't married the night of the first murder that happens. And then we get to see another character later on who also has a child and she's not married. And she actually goes on a date with another guy, so I thought that was pretty cool. There's also the soundtrack here I thought was really cool. It has a definitely 80s vibe to it, but it really also amps up the scenes, especially when we are getting some of the killings, so I thought that really worked. There's also this really cool thing that happens where Brad, who is Maddie's boyfriend, goes back to his office as he is the manager of this apartment complex and he's listening to this televangelist on the radio everything that this religious talk that is happening correlates back to the story somehow like there's one that's kind of funny to me where it's a hand for a hand but on top of that he's saying something about twins and it's fitting that that is the basis of this movie here i don't think it's necessarily great because i do think the story kind of falls apart a little bit but not enough really to ruin anything here. I thought the acting was pretty solid for a subgenre that necessarily isn't built on it. I do think they could have fleshed out the twins a little bit better. But I do think this is one that I could recommend to groups while drinking. And I just think this is a fun slasher overall. The, like I said, the effects are really good in it. That's probably the brightest spot along with the soundtrack. So I came in with a 6.5 out of 10 here. And the final mini review for this week is going to be for Mary Riley. This comes from 1996. This was directed by Stephen Frayers. It comes from a novel written by Valerie Martin, who is basing this off uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There's just a little bit different take and who they are following in that story. And the screenplay here comes from Christopher Hampton. This stars Julia Roberts, John Malkovich, and George Cole. This is a drama horror romance thriller from the United States and the United Kingdom. This is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a housemaid falls in love with Dr. Henry Jekyll and his darkly mysterious counterpart, Mr. Edward Hyde. Now this is a film that I'm pretty sure I saw part of it in class, but never the whole thing. For the life of me though, I cannot remember if this was high school or college. What is even more confusing as to why I can't piece it together is I don't recall ever reading The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or the novel that this movie is based on in class. I do know that I have read the one from Robert Louis Stevenson on my own time as just something that I wanted to do, but just never been like a required thing. So that's why I am getting it confused. But I don't really want to delve too much more into anything from what the synopsis is stating. This is really just, like I said, a different take where we are following Mary Riley, who is Roberts, as she works in the house for Dr. Jekyll and ends up kind of having two different types of love for Dr. Jekyll as well as his counterpart. And just some of the things that I found pretty interesting here is that 
Riley is definitely nervous by nature, and we learn that this is caused by abuse from her father. And this actually delves into an interesting talk that she has with Dr. Jekyll, as she claimed that her father was a good man, and her father in this movie is played by Michael Gambon. And what I like about this, though, she says that when he's sober, he was a nice man and was pretty much as pretty good to an extent he was a little bit rough but when he would start to drink it almost seemed like a different person would come out of him and that's where Dr. Jekyll questions and wondering maybe there is and he has already become Mr. Hyde at this point so that is where he's kind of drawing the correlation there we also get some interesting social commentary here of misogyny that is done through Mr. Poole, who is the one who runs the household for Dr. Jekyll. But I also feel like this is just an undertone of Victorian England, which I do think they develop and the settings as well as the effects make it does seem like this is the era that it's taking place in. So I thought that was pretty well done. We are really also exploring that Dr. Jekyll has been living a life of repression pretty much the whole time. I mean, if you've read this story, you definitely know that. So it's nothing really new that we are playing on here. But he has developed love for Mary Riley because he does notice her at one point reading a book in his study and offers allows her to read whatever one she fancies. She declines this offer, though, and other help to think that she is getting any preferential treatment here because of it. And this is pretty interesting because... We get a story through Bradshaw, who is portrayed by Michael Sheen, who I'm a big fan of, about a maiden that's very similar to her, who the master was taking a liking to, and then end up getting her pregnant and then sends her off. As he's just kind of play on the fact that in this time period and era, yes, they might have taken a liking to some of their staff, but that's about the extent of what it was. And it's almost just more of a plaything, so they don't really want to ever fall into that. But then we also have that Mary is you know, repressing her personal feelings, which I think is very interesting as she does need to guard herself as she is in service of this master. So if she does lose this job, she could miss out on, even though she is a slave in a sense, she does have it pretty well off as opposed to other places. And we do get to hear that this household is ran pretty lenient as to some of the ones that they could be in. But then she does start to lust for Hyde. But I do like here is that we have the more animalistic nature is much stronger than you know the social norms that we develop as we grow up so he comes on to her so this develops this forbidden love that dr jekyll is harboring where hyde allows him to act out on it and speaking of acting i thought the acting in this movie was great i'm not a big julia roberts fan but i do think this is a time where She's already done a lot of major romantic comedies, so this is her branching out into a more challenging role, and I think she does great there. I think John Malkovich does a wonderful job in being both Hyde and Jekyll here. The only problem that I do have, though, is I don't think he looks that much different, so it's hard for me to believe that people wouldn't figure out that he is the same person. I do feel this film runs a bit long. We do get an interesting effect, though, to see him becoming, you know, going back and forth between Jekyll to Hyde is we get to see it backwards at one point. It's just really creepy, and I think the sound effects that go with it really work in making it feel that way. So this isn't a great film. I did find it to be above average, and I would actually probably recommend this more to non-horror fan than horror fans. And the horror fans I would recommend this to if you into romance, because I feel like that is a major crux of this movie. But I do think it could have been cut down to about an hour and a half to make it run a bit tighter for me, as I think it just kind of gets a bit repetitive, in my opinion. 
that's all I really want to talk about here. If I haven't given my numeric rating here, it'd be a 7 out of 10. But what I'm going to go ahead and do now, though, is to get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Okay, here we go. Welcome to Yonder, a wonderful development. It has all you'd need and all you'd want. Number nine. Number nine is not a starter home. This house is forever. Leave for a boy. Do you have children? No. It's not exactly what we're looking for. That guy was so strange. Yeah. Wait. No, no, I don't think this is the right way. Yeah, this is the way we came in. Number nine again. Did we just do some kind of loop? How if we just... Want me to drive? Such a jerk. Because I think this is not possible. We can't make turns like this over and over. We have gone this way, Tom. Oh, my God. Hello? Hello? What's happening? Maybe they'll let us go. What if they don't come? supposed to do? Should we just sit here and we wait to die? It's a boy. featured review here on episode number 26 is going to be vivarium from it's actually made in 2019 but is getting its release here in 2020 this is directed by lorcan finnegan who also came up with the story along with garrett shanley who end up writing the screenplay here this is starring imogen putz jesse eisenberg and sheenan jennings this is a horror mystery sci-fi film from Ireland, the United States, Belgium, and Denmark. This is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a young couple looking for the perfect home find themselves trapped in a mysterious labyrinth-like neighborhood of identical houses. Now, this was a film that when I saw the trailer being shown before a movie that I saw with Jamie, I knew that I wanted to see this. With the pandemic and the Gateway Film Center being closed, I was bummed that I wouldn't get the chance to catch this on the big screen. But when I saw it was on VOD, I knew I was going to check this out. And I knew that Jamie was also interested in seeing this. So we did give it a watch together. And I also heard, heard a podcast host, I believe over on the Horrorcast, briefly cover this film. So I definitely knew I needed to check this out. Now, this movie starts off with a creepy scene of seeing a bird's nest. There's one that is bigger, like a baby, than the others, and it slowly pushes the other two out. We then see this bird grows to be larger than the mother that comes back to give it worms. We then shift to inside of a classroom. The teacher is Gemma, who is Poots, 
and the children are singing the song about wind going through the trees. Outside, the children are being picked up by their parents, and there's a young girl, Molly, portrayed by Molly McCann, is looking at the dead birds. It is here that I learned that it is the cuckoo bird that does this, where this bird will be dropped off in a different nest from the actual bird that it you know that it is itself where it'll end up taking all of the food and then pushing the other ones out and pretty much you know killing this whole family of birds in order to survive and make its own way the girl is then sent on as her mother calls there's then a kind of funny scene where her fiance tom portrayed by eisenberg messes with her as he is up in the tree with a ladder as i'm saying they're dating and they're in the market for a new house the couple then goes into an office for a development called Yonder. They meet with Martin, who is portrayed by Jonathan Aris, who wants to take them out to a unit and show them around. Gemma doesn't really care for the models that they're seeing, and Tom doesn't want to go at all. He does convince them, though, and they decide to check it out, mostly because Gemma is nice. There's something off about Martin, but as I said, he is, seems to be a nice guy, just a little bit off. Tom keeps making sarcastic comments, and Gemma's just being nice. Things then take a turn, though, when Martin disappears. The couple tries to drive away, but no matter which direction they go and which way they turn, they continue to end up back at Unit 9. They decide to stay the night, and the next morning, Tom uses his ladder to climb up to the roof and makes a chilling discovery that there are no end in sight as these same houses go on forever, in both and all directions. There's something just not right about the sun or the clouds, either, and including that the grass seems to be artificial. Now, Tom makes a drastic decision, but no matter what they do, it doesn't make a difference, and they keep ending up at unit number nine. That next morning is when they find a box with a baby inside. There's writing on it stating that if they take care of it, they'll be able to go. Much like where they're trapped, there's something not quite right about this child, and Tom continues to try to find a way out. Now, this is where I wanted to leave it, as I don't really want to spoil the movie, there is something I left out that is actually in the trailer, but I regardless just want to leave it there. I do think there's a lot to unravel here. Something interesting about this movie is that we don't get a definite answer. I did look up an interview with the director Finnegan, as well as the writer Shanley, and I did this on purpose as I wanted to, you know, when I wrote my review for this, as well as before recording it, I wanted to make sure that I knew as much as I could about this movie because of how it sat with me. They love the different concepts according to this, as well as the theories that have been coming up. And the thing is, they don't necessarily have an answer themselves, which sometimes bother me. And sometimes I do like the open-endedness where I can make my own conclusions. So I am going to include some of the interpretations that I brought up there, as I feel that it kind of helps me to describe what I'm going for. I'm also going to have a spoiler section at the end of this, so I will keep this as light as I can without spoilers, as I do want to delve in a little bit more. But the first thing that I want to go into here is the opening scene with this bird's nest, which I feel like is quite important. All I'll say here is that the boy they have to raise is like this cuckoo in that he's driving a wedge between them and is taking their lives over. And I also feel there's a bit of sucking the energy from his, you know, quote, parents, unquote. And it's interesting to read that this story was inspired by the housing developments that popped up in Ireland right before the economic collapse that happened in the last decade. This does translate well over to the United States, as that's where I'm from, in the fact that we've been seeing these type of housing units develop since the 1970s. Heck, this is part of the concept in the original Poltergeist. These houses are pretty much carbon copies of themselves, as this cuts down on costs and profit margins, because you don't really have to go out of the box here, as all you have to do is just keep building these same houses, selling them and turning them at a profit, 
and that's definitely kind of what we're getting here. Now, going from this, there's a bit of creature feature in this movie. We first get introduced to it when Tom is digging. He hears a creature faintly and thinks that he keeps hearing it, so this inspires him to keep digging on, hoping that he'll find something. The boy is watching things on television that are in black and white, with an eerily sounding noise emanating from it. And now, when he gets older and is portrayed by Ina Hardwick, he also has a book with similar images from the television, and Gemma looks through it and can't make headwise of it, but it does seem to be somewhat of an explanation of what's going on, but it's in a language that we can't understand. Now, there's also a scene with the boy and Gemma where he is mimicking things to a spot that is just unbelievable as he's able and does this quite often where he mimics Gemma as well as Tom. But then she asks him if the boy when he disappeared that day had met somebody new and if he could mimic them and what he does legit chilled me to the bone if I'm going to be honest. It is one of the scariest parts of this movie for sure. The last thing I want to talk about here with the story has to be without spoilers is that we can clearly see that they're living in a world that is like our own but just isn't right. The houses are all beige. There's no real color. All the food they eat they state is very similar in that it's bland and flavorless. The art in the house are just paintings of the room that it is in or the outside of the house. The sun isn't right and the clouds look fake. It is just being in a world that is like a mimic, but doesn't have the heart that humanity brings. The boy doesn't really know how to convey emotions either, and that's kind of something that I'm getting at here is that all of these things are like what is in our world, but just lacking that emotion of being real. Now to shift this over to the pacing of the movie, I've heard a lot of people saying that this should have been 40 minutes long and could have been just like an episode of The Twilight Zone. I do get that, where although I did like it, I do feel this does run a bit long. There's like 98 minutes here. I legit think you can cut this down to 90 or even probably 85 minutes and it would have tightened it up and made it flow much better. The movie doesn't really give us a definite ending and it does get a bit repetitive, which I think that's some of the stuff that could be cut. Not all of it, because I do think we need to kind of get to the idea that they're living a monotonous life that they don't want to be in. But I like the open-ended aspects that we get where I can make my own conclusions. I do think that it could have been tightened just a little bit, though, to give us a direction of something where we don't necessarily get that. What doesn't disappoint me, though, is the acting. Poots is really the star here. I've been a fan of her for a while, and it is interesting that she doesn't do a whole lot. I don't think... I've seen her in a bad role, maybe aside Black Christmas. I don't necessarily blame her there though, as she has the most depth here in this movie and really makes you question what you would do at times. Eisenberg is interesting as he is pushing her humanity and she is saddened by the rift that comes between them. I thought his sarcasm adds to his character and that's something I usually get from him a lot. Jennings, Eris, and Hardwick were all solid. There's just something off about all of them and it really made me feel uncomfortable. And I have to say that overall, the acting in this movie was good. Taking this to the effects, we don't really get a lot of them, to be honest. I love how this is made to set to feel like we're on something like the Truman Show. We know there's something off about it, and we really don't know what it means. Most of the effects seem to be done practical, which is always a good thing for me. If there is some CGI, it was seamless. They do have some really good cinematography, and the use of color late in the movie is great because it signifies different things. The devoid of color here, for the most part, makes sense as well. The last thing to go over would be the soundtrack. We do get a few indie songs that I had never heard of, but I really like their sound. 
it brings an interesting vibe to the movie and just fit for what they needed. I'd legit consider adding these songs to my playlist if I'm going to be honest. And the rest of it also fit to help enhance the scenes when it was used. So now with that said, I really like the concept of this movie and the story that they're presenting us. If I have to be honest here though, I do think that leaving the ending a bit too ambiguous does kind of hurt. It is a shame though, as we have a bit more direction with this could have been one of my favorite films of the year. I thought the acting was good across the board with Poots just taking the lead. The effects we get, the use and not use of color was strategic. We get a solid little soundtrack and I'd have to say that this is a good movie and one that I would have liked to check out again. It really made me uneasy feeling and I'd like to actually recommend this to non-horror fans as well as horror fans alike just because there are just some social commentary and relevance here for sure. But my rating for this is going to be an 8 out of 10. Now, like always, I'm going to have this time coded to where I'm going to start the spoiler section where we're here in a second. If you haven't seen this movie, I would definitely recommend skipping over this. If you don't care, just kind of, you know, go ahead and keep going through. But for those who want to go ahead and see this film as, before listening to this section, I will start those spoilers now. Now, what I really wanted to delve into here is what I think this movie is about. We have Martin, who needs to bring a couple to a house in order to raise another child like him. They grow quite fast and make a loud screaming sounds that are annoying and really just mimics his parents, which in this case are Gemma and Tom. But like I said though, he's driving a wedge between them. I also think this is an allegory for young couples having children before they're ready. Tom is kind of an asshole here and rejects a child flat out. Because he sees it as a creature, he's willing to starve it to death. Until, you know, it dies. I guess you could see this as an abortion of sorts. Gemma isn't prepared, but she feels a kinship as the time goes on and just can't let it die. And I feel this is what also drives a wedge between her and Tom as, you know, they are the other side of this. The boy is a monster, though. We get to see an odd scene where Tom throws a cigarette down and the artificial grass disappears. He starts to dig, but there's something just not quite right about the dirt that is being dug up. His body bruises and the food that they're eating isn't giving him the actual nutrition that he needs. So he's breaking down and wasting away. Now I know Jamie thought that the creature might be actually beating him, which I don't think is the case. I think it's the constant digging so he is exerting too much and is, you know, experiencing exhaustion. He does find something in the hole, and I think that might be a former occupant of the house. Like as the cuckoo does, the boy is taking the life away from these two people until he's ready to go out into the world himself. Sticking with the boy being a monster, Gemma, Gemma does try to follow him where he goes the one day. She does attack him when she gets fed up, and he opens up a rip into another dimension. I like that we get to see this. Even though the couple feels lost in their place, they probably have people living next door. It's just a different dimension. Since Gemma is human, I think this kills her as it is too much strain on her body, and I do think that she is losing a bit of herself in these developments where you don't actually know your neighbors in a sense, and that you kind of just become another face in one of these places like that. And having the different colors, I think just signifies there's a different dimension where there are other monsters that are being grown with these parents who don't necessarily want to have them either. And we get to see one person kills himself in a bathtub. There's another person that is just uber depressed, kind of like how Tom is. But Tom needs to try to find purpose with working where Gemma does try to kind of take this child under her wing and then once she realizes that he's a monster in that creepy scene where he has these weird sacks on his neck, that's where she kind of gives up and realizes that she needs to try to help Tom and try to find a way out of all of this. Like I said, I really wish this film would have kind of gave us a little bit more direction. I do find some of the aspects to be quite interesting. This is probably going to fall short eventually of making my top 10 
at the moment it is sitting there just because I haven't seen that many movies and with an 8 out of 10 at the moment it's still up there but that's really all I wanted to delve into here I kind of wish this spoiler section would have been longer but it's just a problem of not really knowing enough to kind of delve into it I guess but what I'm gonna go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer for my second featured review attacks a human, there's bound to be a lot of noise. But I, as a scientist, take many things into consideration a layman might overlook. Ever smelled anything like this before? Found it in Don Morton's bathroom. Well, yes. That's the same stuff that's been on every one of the Devil Bat's victims. All four of the murdered people had this lotion on them when the Devil Bat struck. Leighton, I'm afraid all these murders have affected your mind. Now, my plan is to sit in the garden, and when the killer makes one of those power dives, I'll blast him. Night, you have work to do. It's time you were on your way. My second featured review of this episode is going to be The Devil Bat from 1940. This is directed by Gene Yarbrough. This comes from a screenplay from John T. Neville. And then the original story was done by George Brickner. This stars Bella Lugosi, Suzanne Karen, and Dave O'Brien. This is a horror sci-fi film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a mad scientist develops an aftershave lotion that creates his gigantic bats to kill anyone who wears it. Now, this is a film that I don't think I really heard about until I first got into podcasts. I didn't really know much about it and decided to give it a viewing here for my journey through the aughts segment that I do for my podcast. As you can tell, as you are listening to this currently, it did star Bella Lugosi, so that did pique my interest. Now, we start this off learning that we're going to be in the small town of Heathville. Here, everyone loves Dr. Paul Carruthers, who is Lugosi. Due to this, he's allowed to conduct experiments at his home with pretty much without any interference. The movie then takes us into his house. We see that Dr. Carruthers is experimenting on bats and has made one quite large with electricity. He also has created a lotion used for what he's saying is aftershave as well. Now he gets a call to come to a party from his boss's Henry Morton, who is Guy Usher, and Martin Heath, who is Edmund Mortimer. Now Dr. Carruthers doesn't realize it is them wanting to give him a bonus check, but he does agree to come. He gets caught up though and doesn't actually show up to the party. We then see that Henry Martin is a lot is there along with their children Mary Heath who is Karen there's Don Morton who is Gene O'Donnell Tommy Heath who is Alan Baldwin and Roy Heath who is John Ellis they do try to call Dr. Carruthers and he gives them the unfortunate news that he will not be attending Roy states that he'll go up to the doctor's place to give him the check and to kind of relay any information that they would like him to. It is there that he does exactly what he was supposed to, and Dr. Carruthers in turn gives him an experimental aftershave that he has created. 
Now the movie then gives us insight into the mind of Dr. Carruthers. He's mad at the owners as he feels like they have swindled him. They bought him out when they were all together at the start of this company where they used Dr. Carruthers formula to create, I believe a perfume. Now he wanted money up front. So they end up, as I'm saying, buying him out of it. And they decided to kind of brunt all of the financial burden from that point on. Because they did this, they got rich and then he became bitter. To get his revenge, he releases his enlarged bats into the night and they're attracted to the aftershave that Roy puts on. He is killed that night. It is a mystery as to what did it though, as no one really saw it. Mary was outside with Don and they heard the screams, but found her brother dead and didn't see anything around it. A reporter is assigned to this investigation and he is a hotshot named Johnny Layton, portrayed by O'Brien. And along with him, he's taken a photographer known as One Shot McGuire, portrayed by Donald Kerr. They meet up with the Chief Wilkins, who is Hal Price, who accepts their aid in this investigation and set them up with interviews with those involved in the situation. Now, Mary takes a liking to Johnny, where McGuire takes interest in her French maid, Maxine, who is Yolandi Donlan. The evidence doesn't make sense as they find things that don't match the size of the claws and bite marks with the hair that they find on the body of the deceased. Dr. Carruthers is even helping with the investigation as well. Now Johnny and McGuire do some shady things to stay on the job, but we see that what is causing this and they're trying their best to get to the bottom of it as they do know that there are these enlarged bats and actually it is Johnny who comes up with the term devil bat but nobody else really believes them at first, and some of the things they do make it even more unbelievable as well. Now, this is an interesting film for me, as it feels like a universal film, but it's not. This was created by Producers Releasing Corporation, and I read up as they were kind of like the early Roger Corman, where they would shoot these films very quickly with a small budget, and then would ramp up the horror though. It also has a low running time that made it feel like a universal film for me as well. And I also figured out that this is the most successful movie that this company made. Now, what also struck me about this is this seems to be like a bridge between the more classic horror that we got in the 30s from Universal to the sci-fi atomic age of the 1950s. We're mixing science here with Dr. Carruthers making these normal bats larger and was able to control them with the element that he's discovered from Tibet. It is explained that monks use it there, but he's been using it to condition these bats to not like the smell, and then using it in his revenge plot to target certain individuals. I found this to be a pretty interesting concept if I'm going to be honest. Something else that is pretty relevant here is the press doing things that aren't the truth and how it creates problems. I think this is fitting that I gave this a watch during this fake news era at this time. As McGuire purchases a bat from a taxidermist and he goes about staging a photo so they can send it to the editor to keep them off the back and as well as sell papers. The problem is that the only people who have seen it thus far is him, Johnny, and Mary. Dr. Carruthers of course has as well but he's not going to admit it during this time. A zoologist is brought in to rebuff the photo and then it gets the two guys in hot water especially because McGuire did not take a tag off of the wing and it stated that this was made in Japan. This is an interesting concept here where you have people staging this stuff to make people, and this ends up making people not believe, and it is outrageous as well as being outside of comprehension because this bat, the zoologist ends up, once they realize that this could be real, thinks that it is a prehistoric bat that somehow survived and is the only one of its kind, not realizing that we have science that has created it. And it's really hard to knock this film for its pacing as the movie only runs 68 minutes. 
I'm glad that it did, to be honest. If anything, though, the characters could have been fleshed out a bit more, or they could have developed a bit more of the subplots, as they really don't have anything with that either. The movie moves at a good clip, even though many of the deaths are off screen. I don't hate this completely. It would have gotten repetitive, so it, they just show everything through newspaper headlines to fill things in. This is a cheap way of doing things, but I kind of have a soft spot for it. And the ending is very much like a Universal movie, in that it is abrupt and just wraps everything up nicely. Now moving this to the acting, I did like to see Lugosi here. I'm not completely sure of his timeline, but I do know that he did a lot of Universal films and started to butt heads with some of the top brass on making him top billing. And I do know that there was also a drug problem aspect to his story as well, but not sure when that started and if this was him just wanting to continue to work or if he needed to you know pay bills so that's part of why he was here but regardless i thought his performance was good and you can see the duality of his character he seems like a nice guy and everybody really likes him but when we when he's alone we see that that's not really the case that facade he has going also deteriorates as his plan continues to work and starts to eliminate people that he wants to Karen was fine as she really isn't that fleshed out and a similar could be said for O'Brien. We see that there that he's a good reporter but will cut corners along with Kerr and I did like that he brought some levity with Dolan and the rest of the cast thought was fine in rounding this out for what was needed. Now the last thing to cover would be the effects. I first wanted to give credit for using the actual footage of live bats. It is very quick and it is extreme close-ups so it's easy to tell that bats in this are actually animals or toys or things of that nature and it is hard to fault the movie for using fake bats when they're flying this is something that you could see for the next 30 plus years at times as well in cinema i can be forgiven that this does bring a bit of charm if i'm honest and like i said being for 1940 it's not the worst and i am more critical of things that came after this the cinematography was also fine in my opinion but nothing really special there now with that said this isn't a great film but i still enjoyed this low budget effort we get an intriguing bridging film from one generation to the next mixing sci-fi with revenge and horror the concept isn't bad but we really don't get the fleshing out of the characters or the subplots it has a low running time which is fine but i would have liked a little bit more for my problem the effects were okay for the era and the soundtrack really didn't stand out or hurt the movie i did like seeing lugosi here and thought the rest of the cast helped to round this out I will warn you, this is from 1940, so it is in black and white. There is a colorized version that you can watch on Prime. I wanted to see how it was originally intended before seeking this out, as this does fall into public domain because the company did not renew the copyright. So there are quite a few of them on YouTube. I am going to watch the colorized version, though, so I can give you know money back to the companies that are putting it out there. And I would say that this is slightly above average in my opinion, but nothing great. This would be a great introduction to a younger horror fans for sure. I would say this would be, you know, right there after the Universal Classics in my opinion. It is a step down from quite a bit of those, but I still enjoyed this and thought, like I said, this is slightly over average. And I came in here with a 6.5 out of 10. Now, I'm not going to do a spoiler section as I don't really think there's a whole lot to the story to really delve into. It does look like this company, Producers Releasing Corporation or PRC, after the war decided to recapture some of the success and they made an in-only name sequel called The Devil Bat's Daughter and a virtual shot-by-shot -shot remake called The Flying Serpent. Now, those are both in 1946 and I don't think they did very well. 
this, as as I said earlier, was the first and actually most successful horror film that they released. This is considered being produced by the, quote, Poverty Row, unquote, studio of PRC, as it failed to renew its copyright, so this fell into public domain. And this also explains why it would run on late night TV and is available on home video from multiple distributors, often of very poor quality. This did receive its first documented telecast in New York City on Wednesday, August 4th in 1948. Due to its box office success, this was given both a 1945 re-release when it was double billed with Man Made Monster and an in-name only sequel of Devil's Bat's Daughter. The phrase Devil Bat is used 29 times in the movie. And it's interesting enough is that there is a quite a bit age difference between Dave O'Brien and Donald Kerr of 21 years as O'Brien at the time of this was 28 while Kerr was 49. And it does look like that both of these men really kind of had quite a bit of work, but only really played bit parts. Example is that Kerr was in 29 movies in 1940 alone, but was only credited in two or three of those. O'Brien is best known for his wacky role in 1936's Reefer Madness, but did a nice job. And in the more serious in 1945, where he was in The Man Who Walked Alone, and it does look like Kerr also was best known for Happy Hapgood, a reporter who accidentally accompanies Flash Gordon to Mars in the 1938 serial. But that is all I really wanted to delve into there. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. Just a matter how you solve them But what else are we supposed to do? Part of me won't agree Cause I don't know if it's 
I want to thank you all for listening to episode number 26 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. Just to close out the show, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. You can read any of the reviews from movies that I covered on this episode or any of the previous ones at Reviews of the Dead, and that is horrorreview.webnode.com. If you want to add me on Facebook to interact there, I'm David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. On Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And on Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And now all of those links will be in the show notes, as always. And whatever podcasting app you are listening to this on, if you could go ahead and subscribe, just so that way any of the future episodes you don't have to miss, that would be greatly appreciated on my part. And if whatever you're listening to, you can rate or review, I would also appreciate that just to kind of figure out Even if there's things that I'm doing you don't like, to go ahead and put that in there, just so I can make this the best show possible. And what I'm going to go ahead and do for the next episode is going to be another Journey Through the Ots, where the 1940s film that I'm going to be covering is Boris Karloff's The Ape. And I'm not entirely sure yet what the 2020 release will be. I need to look through some of the lists that are online to kind of see what's out there and to see if I can pair something interesting to go along with that and see if i can stick with the theme with either mad scientist or with you know animals attacking so it'll be something like that don't worry i will have something there for you but i want to thank you once again for listening whatever you do today i hope you have a great time doing it and this is david garrett jr signing off